Welcome to our third episode of Season 14, where we will be talking all things a great night's sleep. Doesn't that sound wonderful? (laughs) With my sleep coach, Kelly Murray. Insomnia was my main perimenopause symptom, and I had no idea that sleep challenges, whether it's falling asleep, staying asleep, insomnia, I had no idea that 60% of women report these type of sleep challenges during perimenopause and menopause. So I wanted to bring Kelly on because she helped me so much several years ago. Um, And we're going to discuss the root causes of poor sleep and how the hormonal changes of this time influence sleep. We're going to discuss the role of blood sugar and gut health and the power nutrition and food has on sleep. We're going to discuss how many sleep aids don't address the root sleep issues people are having and what other minerals aside from magnesium are helpful and the importance of stress management on sleep. Kelly really offers a holistic approach, which is why I hired her and wanted her to talk to all of you today. More about Kelly. She is a certified adult sleep coach and functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner, which means she combines physical and metaphysical know-how to help women solve their sleep issues by using functional lab testing, mindset shifts, and behavioral strategies. Kelly's spoken at places like Google, LinkedIn, and Deloitte, and she's been featured in numerous media outlets such as Goop, Well and Good, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and Forbes. One note. You're going to hear Kelly mention blood sugar and gut health a lot for restorative sleep. We focus on both of these physiological processes in Truce with Food, which is open for registration now through January 31st, 2024, and you save $500 if you enroll by January 19th. These processes have always been the foundation of hunger, craving, satisfaction, and great energy, and they become even more important to understand, pay attention to, and make nutrition choices through this lens during midlife. And we're going to talk a little bit more about why that is today related to sleep. And if blood sugar especially is a topic that interests you, I invite you to my next Find Your Flow when it's all in Flux Salon on Wednesday, January 10th. In this free gathering, I'll teach you about blood sugar control so you can cut through all the nutrition noise and overwhelm. I'll provide a nervous system framework that can guide you to what diet, noun, not verb, may work best for you. Join us at alishapiro.com backslash flow. Now on to our show and a much better night's sleep with Kelly Murray. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Insatiable Today. When I surveyed my list about midlife, perimenopause, and menopause problems, the number one complaint, aside from weight gain, was sleep issues. And so I am so happy to have my sleep coach, Kelly Murray, who helped me with my own insomnia a couple of years ago on today. So thank you so much for being here, Kelly. I am so excited to be here, Allie. Thank you. Yeah. So before we get started, this season is, you know, thrown for the midlife loop. How do you define midlife? What do you think of it when I say that? Yeah. So for me, midlife is when someone's approaching their mid to late 40s to about 60. That's how I would define midlife in terms of the age range. And it's just a time, especially for for women, where we're seeing a lot of changes in our body. We're beginning to start um, to stop ovulating. And so we have the hormonal decline, which can lead to a whole host of physical and mental symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's when we start to notice is when the body starts reacting differently. I feel like that's probably the biggest wake up for people of the midnight time. So tell me, there's these body changes, but tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into sleep. So my um, journey into sleep started with my son, Brayden. He was my second. And all the things I was doing with my daughter to help her to sleep while just weren't working. She was kind of a unicorn baby where I was able to feed her to sleep and she just fell asleep. I could transfer her into her crib. She would sleep all night. It was beautiful. So I tried the same thing with my son, rocking, feeding to sleep. And 
he was up every hour on the hour needing to be rocked and fed back to sleep. And I was absolutely miserable. I was a zombie, but I just kept up with it because I thought that's what I had to do as a good mom. And luckily my pediatrician recognized that both of us were severely sleep deprived at his nine month well visit and asked me how my son was sleeping. And I just like bursted out in tears. And luckily he sat me down and educated me on the importance of good quality sleep for my son's development and for my mental health. And he squashed any fears I had about him crying when it came to sleep training, because that's what he was suggesting. Like, you need to sleep train this child, teach him to fall asleep independently so that he can fall asleep in between sleep cycles on his own. So he explained to me that the sleep deprivation was more detrimental for my son's mental health than the fact that he would have to cry a little bit to learn these new skills. So I trusted my pediatrician and decided to sleep train him. And they used a very supportive method. And with three days, he was falling asleep and staying asleep. And it was so life-changing for everyone. And the program that I used, I got an email from the woman who created it a few days after we had this like miracle night where my son just fell asleep with a smile on his face and slept 12 hours without waking anyone up received this email that she offered a certification program. And I just jumped at it immediately. I was looking for a career change and always wanted to have my own business and especially wanted to help others. At the time I was in medical sales and I felt like I was helping others indirectly, but I wanted to work one-on-one with individuals. So jumped at the opportunity, became a pediatric sleep coach. And then fast forward about a year later, my business was booming And I started having sleep issues myself and they were pretty severe. I was waking up every night around three. It would take me hours to fall asleep. Sometimes I wouldn't fall asleep. And again, I became a zombie and I felt like this big hypocrite. How could I be telling these families that they need to make sleep a priority when I wasn't sleeping myself? So I decided to heed my own advice and I worked with an adult sleep coach. We worked a lot on behavior change and it definitely helped to move the needle However, it didn't solve my problem 100%. And then luckily, one of my fellow pediatric sleep coaches told me about a woman in Belgium who offered a different approach when it came to sleep issues. And she looked at the underlying functional reasons behind insomnia. So I decided to work with her. We did a full functional workup and realized that my hormones were out of whack and my gut health and I was deficient in minerals. And so I started working at addressing those hidden stressors. And after about three months, I was sleeping better than I had ever slept before. And very similar to when I decided to become a pediatric sleep coach, I found out she had a certification and jumped at the opportunity to learn from her so that I could also help adults get good quality sleep. I love that. You take such a holistic and integrative approach. And that's why part of, I mean, your process was recommended to me by one of my clients because they were having struck trouble with insomnia, which is how I, you know, was put in touch with you. And what attracted me was the integrative approach because just for everyone realizing I was postpartum when I contacted Kelly, I remember being so desperate. It was a night Essa hadn't slept at all. (laughs) So I had been up with it for 24 hours, but I was having my own sleep issues. And I kind of felt like I was doing everything quote unquote, right. Although we'll get to, we'll get into like some of the stuff I wasn't paying attention to, but you were really about those hidden physical stressors. And this is so important because I know for me, it was like this vicious cycle of not getting sleep. And then I would want to drink more coffee. And then I was more irritated. And I remember part of our work was I was so upset about how I wasn't parenting the way that I wanted to parent because my moods were so poor. I was having brain fog. I couldn't, I couldn't work in the same way. And my and my now growing family it depends on my income and all this stuff. And so sleep just affects everything. And I feel like so many solutions out there are only just kind of slightly moving the needle versus really helping us get that deep sleep for health that we need. So I love that you take, you look at the physical stresses and also focus on some of the emotional stuff, which we'll, we'll get into today. So before we start getting into 
like all the things. I want to just establish a baseline because 60% of people in perimenopause and menopause say they struggle with sleep. So how do you define like a good night's sleep? And is that a different benchmark during this phase of life? And what are some signs of bad sleep? (laughs) Yeah. So everyone always asks me, what is the magic number when it comes to hours of sleep I should get each night? And it's definitely individual. However, I find that most people will feel and operate pretty well if they can get seven hours of high quality sleep, which means that they're able to fall asleep with ease within about 30 minutes. They don't have extremely fragmented sleep. So a lot of us think that we just should sleep through the night, but I hate to break it that no one sleeps through the night. We all wake up about five times in between sleep cycles. So waking up in the middle of the night is very normal. However, you should be able to fall back to sleep quickly. It shouldn't take you longer than 10, 15 minutes to fall back to sleep. Also, a lot of people think that their sleep should be really deep. And really, in the early morning hours, our sleep is really light. And if you have a very busy mind or you're a little stressed about something, you may be a little bit more aware of the fact that you're kind of in that in-between state of consciousness and unconsciousness and perceive that as being awake or not being high-quality sleep. But the true test is, you know, if you're falling asleep easily, pretty much sleeping through the night. You may remember waking up. You may feel like you have some light sleep that's totally normal, but you should wake up and you still may feel a little groggy when you wake up, but within like a half hour, you should come to life and feel well rested. And you should have a pretty steady stream of energy throughout the day. Now it is normal to have a little bit of a dip in energy around three o'clock because that's when our cortisol really starts to tank but you shouldn't feel exhausted. You shouldn't have a headache because of lack of sleep. You shouldn't have problems concentrating because you didn't sleep well. You should, you know, feel pretty good, have good energy, have a positive, you know, outlook in life and just, you know, feel good, feel joy. That's to me, the ultimate sign of a good night's sleep is how you feel the next day. And to stop looking at like all the metrics, everyone loves to measure everything. And I think it can be helpful. However, don't place a lot of stock in it. Like what's most important is how you feel. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I've been reading on some of the new menopause research where they're finding like that fragmented sleep like doesn't count as much as like the solid continuous, like if you're waking up every say hour or so because of a hot flash or like, you know, for, for whatever reason that that can be, that's not really restorative sleep and you need that kind of continuous um, sleep. So I'm glad you brought up that fragmented stuff. What about, are there any signs of bad sleep? I guess maybe the fragmentation, but anything, anything else? Yeah, I would say that you're waking up in the middle of the night and you're having a hard time falling back to sleep. Like, you know that it's been more than 15 minutes since you woke up and you feel really alert and it takes you, you know, 30 minutes or longer to fall back to sleep. To me, that's a sign that you're struggling with night wakings that are not normal. And you're right, it could be due to a hot flash. If your body temperature increases and that lowers melatonin, it's going to impact your ability to connect sleep cycles. And the problem with that is then you're missing out on different stages of sleep, which it's really important to complete all the stages as well. So that would be one sign. Another sign is that you're just, you know, in the During the day, you just don't feel your best. You know, you have a headache, you're having a hard time focusing, you don't have a lot of energy, your mood is poor, you feel, you know, more depressed. Those are all symptoms, sleep deprivation. And also, you know, you're getting sick more often. Mm, Um, Oh my God. Low immunity is another sign of sleep deprivation. And, you know, you should, most people should strive for at least seven hours around there. Some people can get by with six, but you you definitely need somewhere between seven, eight hours of sleep to feel your best. I love that. And do you think that shifts based on the season? Like, I feel like I need less in the summer and more in the winter. 
Yeah, there is research to show that we sleep an hour less in the summer compared to the winter. And I think that has a lot to do with darkness. It's darker, more, you know, longer in the winter. So we naturally have more melatonin in our system because melatonin is produced when there's an absence of light. That tells our body that it's nighttime. And then our body will suppress cortisol and produce melatonin, the sleepy hormone. And so it makes more sense that we would sleep more in the winter because it's darker, longer. Yeah. Oh my God. I can't wait to get into melatonin later because you taught me so much about that. (laughs) So when your clients are coming to you, what are their common struggles? Yeah. Most of my clients struggle to stay asleep. A lot of my Mm. clients have no problem falling asleep. It's those middle of the night wake-ups or just waking up too early. Say you're going to bed at 10 and then you wake up at four o'clock and you feel like you're shot out of a cannon and you just can't fall back to sleep. So those are the biggest complaints. But you know, once in a while, I do have clients who struggle to fall asleep or they have circadian misalignment where they aren't tired until later in the evening and it doesn't work with their work schedule. So they want to shift their schedule a little earlier. Oh, wow. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. And that's due to chronotypes. So we have a, we're genetically pre- We have genetically predetermined timing of our sleep and awake cycles. So Mm -hmm. there's five different chronotypes. There's the lions. Those are the early risers. Uh, We have our bears. Those are people who follow the solar schedule. That's the majority folks. It's like 50%. So they want to wake up with the sun, fall asleep after sunrise or sunsets. The lions who are our night owls. And then dolphins, those are the insomniacs that have a hard time turning off their brains. But a lot of my clients are naturally night owls. And again, it just doesn't work with their work schedule because the nine to five was created because the majority of the population are bears. And that's (laughs) a schedule that's best for them, but it doesn't work a lot. It doesn't work well for our night owls. So I do have clients who need me to help them shift their circadian rhythm a little earlier. Carlos is definitely a night owl. <laughs> and I think so because so of the vegan type, you, right? Yeah, oh, totally, totally, totally. But you said the lion, is that the, the lion is the early morning? Yes. Like, regardless of the season, the bear is kind of like the seasonal person. The night owl, the dolphin is... Is an insomniac who can't the turn insom- their brain off because they say dolphins only sleep with 50% of their brain shut off. Oh God. Okay. And then is there a really erratic schedule? (laughs) Dolphins, who knew? I love them. Those are my people. Those are my clients. (laughs) (laughs) And what about the fifth type? So we went over lions, bears, wolves. Oh, you didn't do say you just do wolves. Oh yeah. And wolves. Yeah. Those are the those are the night owls. Or maybe there's four types. I'm wrong. Yes, there's four types. The wolves are the night owls. The same thing. <laughs> yeah. So, like, if we're thinking of perimenopause and menopause, I love that you mentioned hot flashes, and what because the research shows that about seventy-five to eighty-five percent of women will go through that during menopause. And so, you're saying that the heat wakes us up, and then it also decreases melatonin. Is that? what kind of part of why they keep us awake is that yes yes you know number one it's uncomfortable to have a hot flash you're going to be sweating and feeling really hot so that's going to wake you up but then also our body temperature needs to fall by a few degrees in order to produce melatonin it's another cue that our bodies take from the environment to know what time of day it is So light makes sense, right? Our bodies want to be awake during the day and be productive and sleep at night. But what else happens at night other than the sun setting is that it becomes cooler. The temperature drops and so does your core temperature. So that's another signal to our body that it's nighttime. And so your core temperature needs to maintain a lower temperature in order for your body to synthesize melatonin. So if you have a hot flash, your core temperature raises and then melatonin decreases. And then cortisol increases because if you're not producing melatonin, you're going to produce cortisol, the alert hormone instead. 
Mm. Oh, so they're like opposed to each other. Oh. Yeah, it's like they saw. God, that's really fascinating. Both at the same time. Because we're in the second half, I want to get into stress management and why that's so important. And some of the biggest takeaways I took away from our work. And that makes sense now because in perimenopause and menopause, we lose the protective stress benefits of progesterone and estrogen. So you have to manage cortisol so much more differently for sleep and everything, but also I guess now for melatonin. That was one of the like light bulbs I had with you when you were like, okay, melatonin supplements, but why aren't we producing enough melatonin? And when you told me it needed to be like ideally 60 to 65 degrees for cooler so you could produce more melatonin, that's when I like got our extra air conditioner up, even though we had like central air, it gets so cold in our son's room that I was just like, okay, we're, you know, I'm not doing this. But then when you told me, no, it'll really help you produce more melatonin, the coolness, it was like, it's totally helps. So I was like, all right, get up that extra air unit. <laughs> we're firing it up like the pain in the ass to do it. And yeah, we'll get it's more worth it. We used to have to do the same thing when we lived in the city. We had an old house and we had AC, but it didn't get up to our second floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second unit. It was worth it. Yeah. And we'll get into the second half too, how, how nutrition is so important in bringing our body temperature, bringing inflammation down so that we can produce more melatonin. Because that was another huge aha that I had of like, oh my God, if our poor body temperature is higher because of inflammation, especially from what we're eating, then that's going to be harder to produce melatonin in sleep as well. So you taught me that. <laughs> and then, we, so we talked about, you said staying asleep. And I thought it was really interesting, like one in seven adults suffer from chronic insomnia, but for women, it nearly doubles. And like as many as 61% of even postmenopausal women. So at one year from the day after you have your last period, you're postmenopausal, or some people call it menopausal, but people continue to report these insomnia issues. So those hormonal shifts we're talk- we talked about, I mean, like in the beginning really affect things. And then also sleep apnea. Do you work with a lot of people who have sleep apnea or or a couple of people? I mean, what are your, because often the loss of estrogen and progesterone and perimenopause or menopause can cause sleep apnea. And it's apparently more subtle in women than men. So any thoughts on sleep apnea? (laughs) Yeah. So I do work with individuals who have sleep apnea on the inside, more to help them with the insomnia that may have developed as a result of sleep apnea and also the physical dysfunction that resulted from poor sleep due to sleep apnea. However, if you have sleep apnea, I always recommend working with a medical sleep specialist, a sleep doctor who is going to treat the apnea with a device like a CPAP machine. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of times insomnia and dysfunction and sleep apnea all go hand in hand. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also think part of the like depression, right? Like you get, I I was struggling with my mood so much before working with you because the exhaustion just wears you down. Like the not sleeping wears you down and then, then you're worn down. So then you're more tired and it's kind of this vicious cycle, right? So I think that's something that's really like under talked about in menopause is like that, like insomnia, depression cycle. Do you see that a lot or anxiety cycle? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And especially since when you are starting to go through perimenopause and your progesterone declines, that impacts your GABA production. GABA, Mm -hmm. you know, is really important for mood and feeling relaxed and also your serotonin decreases during perimenopause and serotonin is the feel-good hormone and serotonin is actually the precursor to melatonin. 90% of melatonin is produced from serotonin in the gut. Uh, So that's why you focus on blood sugar gut health. (laughs) Yes, yes, yeah. Gut health is so important for sleep because not only is that where serotonin is produced, but also it's where you're absorbing nutrients from your foods and nutrient deficiencies can contribute to poor sleep. And then there's the gut-brain connection. If you're keeps telling your brain that there's danger, then your nervous system is going to be activated. You're going to spend more time in fight or flight. And when you're in fight or flight, your body's producing cortisol. 
and everything that your body needs to do to maintain balance is put on the back burner, like your immunity, your hormone regulation, digestion, and then just leads to more dysfunction and more poor sleep. So it becomes this vicious cycle. Totally. I remember when we did the Dutch test together and you're like, so your hormones came back like lower than postmenopausal women. And I wasn't even like officially in menopause yet. And I was like, <laughs> like, I'm so stressed out from not sleeping and this huge fight change and a pandemic and all that stuff. But that makes so much sense. And so actually speaking of that, like cortisol and gut brain and stress, what's happening when we wake up three o'clock in the morning and our thoughts are racing? Like what is going on there? <laughs> Back to cortisol. <laughs> yeah, there just could be so many different root causes and it's usually not just one thing. So number one, you might just have an overactive mind. You know, if you go to bed and you haven't given yourself time during the day to process your thoughts and emotions, then what's going to happen in the middle of the night when it's quiet and you have no other distractions and you're waking up naturally in between sleep cycles and maybe you're a little your brain is a little more active because it's so busy due to all the information that you're trying to process, then you're going to wake up in between a sleep cycle and your brain activity is going to be really high. And if you need a quiet brain in order to fall back to sleep. So that could be, you know, one cause. Also, there could be due, to, it could be due to blood sugar dysregulation. So if your blood sugar bottoms out around that time, and I see with a lot of my clients, it does, if it goes below 60, then that triggers the fight or flight response because your body wants to bring your blood sugar back to normal. And so then your body is going to call on your liver to produce glycogen, to bring up your blood sugar. But because your body does this when it's in fight or flight, your body also is going to produce cortisol and that's going to wake you up. It could also be due to liver dysfunction. So in traditional Chinese medicine, between the hours of one and four, that's considered liver time where your liver is working really hard to clear toxins. And so if your liver is sluggish and isn't doing a good job at clearing the toxins, then you're going to have more inflammation in your body at that time. And whenever our bodies are inflamed, our body wants to produce cortisol to bring down the inflammation. So then again, cue a wake up. And then mm. lastly, there could be gut pathogens and gut pathogens are more active at night. So that leads to more inflammation and then more cortisol. Got it. Yeah. Was that you that had the post about parasites? And because Essa wakes up every full moon. I don't think he has parasites, but like he tends to wake up on the full moon. It's like the only night of the, the month that he like wakes up. And I'm like, does he have, does he have parasites? <laughs> did you have a post of that? Or am I like, yeah, yeah, I did. They say that most people have parasites. Like we can get them from our animals, from eating sushi, meats. So yeah. parasites are all, you know, among us and your body should be able to, to fight them naturally if you have good immunity. But uh -huh. in a lot of cultures, like a lot of Asian cultures, they routinely do parasite cleanses because they're eating a lot of raw fish and they know that it's an issue. Oh my God. That's so fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And also awesome. during a full moon, you know, there's more lights. And so that means more like less melatonin. And that's one reason why during a full moon, if you have parasites, they say that it'll interrupt your sleep because melatonin plays a role in our immune system. So the parasites then become more active, activated during a full moon and mm -hmm. they're nocturnal. And so they have a party in the middle of the night. And then again, that <laughs> inflammation and cortisol. Oh my God. It's like the good news and the bad news is everything's connected, <laughs> right? It's like, <laughs> that's yeah. why I think you, what you do in addressing the root causes is like, so such a gift because you really do have to focus kind of on all levels. I, I, I mean, that was my experience in our work together. We had to work on, I had H. pylori, which, and a parasite, which when I told my sister that our testing came back, and I had a parasite and she was like, cause I hate wasting food. So I'll eat expired food. She's like, that surprises me. Not at all. <laughs> okay. I didn't think I had parasites, but then you also were like, 
got me to think that maybe I wasn't eating right for my body anymore. Like I know I do nutrition and all that stuff, but I had no idea the degree of what, how your hormones change, what kind of foods work for you. And so I had to get better blood sugar regulation. I needed, I did that gut cleanse with you, but then also, and this will be the last thing of kind of identifying the problem is stress management. And one of the big takeaways I had in our work together was you always talk to me about like bringing my cortisol down more during the day because you had me do a diary of like my life, I remember. And you're like, you have no downtime. And I didn't connect until our work together, like that lack of downtime, not taking breaks. I was starting to go to bed with my cortisol so much higher than when I just started taking walks to bring down my cortisol so that I wasn't starting starting the night so high with my cortisol so high. But like we hear this term stress management a lot. And can you just speak a little bit to how that interacts with with insomnia and and cortisol since you mentioned cortisol a couple of times being kind of the master blocker of sleep. <laughs> I like that the master blocker of sleep. <laughs> and yeah, so a lot of sleep issues are due to stress. It could be mental and emotional stress. That's usually the culprit where the insomnia initially takes place is because you're going through a stressful situation. Maybe you're changing jobs or you became a new mom or you're getting a divorce. Very, very stressful. And whenever our bodies are stressed, even mental and emotional stress, that triggers fight or flight. And we're spending more time in the sympathetic states which is where our bodies dedicating all the resources to survival. So our blood sugar increases, our respiratory rate, our heart rate, our cortisol, and then everything our body needs to do to maintain balance, as I mentioned before, is put on the back burner. So then you're susceptible to start to experience physical dysfunction, such as mineral deficiencies and gut dysbiosis, parasites, hormonal imbalances, neurotransmitter issues, and that then contributes to the insomnia. So what I find people who have chronic insomnia usually started because of a stressful life event, but then things normalized and they still were having issues sleeping. And that's because of the physical dysfunction that the insomnia caused due to the fact that they were in fight or flight chronically. But it doesn't always necessarily have to be a significant traumatic event that throws you into a sleepless pattern. It could also be, to your point, overworking. So if you think about our ancestors, do you think they worked as hard as we do? <laughs> no, <laughs> we didn't. They probably, you know, walked around and foraged and maybe did a little hunting and prepared their food and spent time with their families. They they weren't working eight to 10 hours straight and not getting any breaks and then you know, taking care of their children, doing homework, sh shuttling our kids to activities. I mean, our modern life is really, really hectic. And to our bodies, that's stress. You know, why are you working so hard? If your body's working really hard, there must be some, a, a saber-toothed tiger nearby that you're trying to defend yourself against. So that can then trigger the sympathetic state and then lead to that excessive cortisol production that causes the initial insomnia. But then the insomnia itself is another stressor. And then you have all the physical dysfunction that happens as a result. I love that. And so for people listening, what started your insomnia may not be what's keeping it going. <laughs> and I think that was definitely the case with me. Like I feel like the hormonal disruptions probably, or and Essa becoming a mom started it, but then I started getting so tired. And I think then the physical, the low immunity, the, then not having like the energy to eat dinner and just wanting to grab a handful of cashews, like, which is not what I need to be eating for my body. <laughs> but when you lack the energy, it kind of is this downward spiral. So yeah, you bring up a good point. There's the behavioral component too, the, that the lack of sleep brings on. You make poor choices when it comes to your food. You don't have enough energy to exercise. Also, then you start to develop sleep anxiety where sleep is a stressful situation. And the last thing you want to do is stress out at night when <laughs> you're trying to sleep. <laughs> 
All right. So we're going to take a quick break because we I outlined the problems now, and then we're going to come back with some solutions. It's that time of year again. Truce with food, trust in satisfaction, not restriction. My six-month group program is open for registration through January 31st, 2024. I only run Truce once a year, and I keep it small so that you get the best of both worlds, my individualized group, individualized attention, and the benefits of an intimate, supportive group. So spots do tend to fill up pretty quickly. We begin February 1st, 2024. Perhaps you've struggled with food for years and suspect that the solution isn't somewhere out there in some passing fad or yet another restrictive diet. You sense that a deeper change is necessary and midlife is a great time to address this deeper change. Over the years, I've guided hundreds of satisfied participants through this program so you get the benefit of a refined curriculum that not only meets you where you are, but guides you to where you'd like to be. We cover a lot of ground in this comprehensive six-month program from learning what foods are best for you now, not when you were 20 or last time something worked for a short time, to discovering the root cause of why you fall off track with your healthy eating. And this includes why falling off track makes sense. Not that it's the problem, but it's the thing to understand and work through. These are results that will last and require no white knuckling. No one's got energy or time for that in midlife, especially. If this sounds like it might be a good fit for you, join me for a completely free, no strings attached sneak peek in my Find Your Flow When It's All in Flux Salon series on Wednesday, December 27th, January 10th, and January 24th from 12 to 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And bring any burning questions from this season so that you can get them answered on this call. Sign up for free at alishapiro.com backslash hello. And no worries if you're listening to this after the three-part series has already started. Once you sign up, you'll receive access to a limited replay of what you missed. I hope to connect with as many of you who listen to this show as possible at this series. Once again, visit alishapiro.com backslash flow for more details. Now back to the show. Okay, Kelly. So I'm going to start off since we went in in real like depth of like all the different potential reasons people can have insomnia. Now we're going to do like a little Google lightning round of answers. And I know that you are so contextual, which is why part of why I hired you, not only the good recommendation, but I hate when people give me one size fits all answers. So I'm not expecting that, but people want to know these answers. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. I'll do my best. Yeah. Okay. So does menopause insomnia go away? I think it just depends on the situation. If you don't develop sleep anxiety and other physical dysfunctions and imbalances and deficiencies due to the insomnia, then it will likely go away once everything kind of shakes out with menopause. But for people who do develop this dysfunction and anxiety around sleep, then it's likely not going to go away until those things have been addressed. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Cause I was thinking in truth with food, I've had some clients, like once we add carbohydrates to their dinner at night, they were trying to cut out carbs initially, but then you like, to your point, address the physical issues. It's like, no, let's add some carbs in for that. It's like, oh my God, I'm sleeping so much better. It's like, yeah. So the answer depends. Like, are you just not eating enough carbs or do you have a parasite? <laughs> and are you addressing the underlying imbalances? So that's important. Someone asked, one of the top searches in Google is, is, is my liver waking me up at 3 a.m.? So you talked a little bit about that, but let's, I want to answer that again. Is it our liver waking us up at 3 a.m.? Yeah, it definitely could be. Because if you do have a sluggish liver and your body is kicking up toxins and not able to clear the toxins, then that leads to inflammation. And whenever our bodies are inflamed, our bodies then produce cortisol because cortisol is an anti-inflammatory. So certainly, yes, I've seen it with a lot of my clients who have poor detox pathways and a sluggish liver that they're waking up around that time. And I even know myself, 
where if I drink a glass of wine, that's the exact time I wake up around <laughs> three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally the liver. <laughs> but Gotta we love it. it. Yeah. What is the best sleep aid for menopause? So I would say number one, hormones. <laughs> you know, what's the biggest change during menopause is that your hormones decrease. So getting on hormone replacement therapy, I think is one of the best solutions during menopause. And also maintaining a stabilized blood sugar, because as you enter menopause, you become more insulin resistant. So really focusing on balancing your blood sugar becomes even more important because you don't want to experience those dips overnight that can lead to a wake up. And in, in addition, if you're having a lot of spikes during the day, that's a stressor on your body. And then that is just pounding on your adrenals. Your adrenals are what are responsible for producing cortisol. And the more you demand of your adrenals, then the more dysfunctional they become. And then what could happen is your body starts producing suboptimal levels of cortisol. Yeah. I love that you said it. And, and HRT is such a big topic. And I love too that you put it as a supplement, like answered it to the supplement question. Cause I, I don't think people realize if you're not keeping your blood sugar balanced, if your gut health isn't healthy, if you're not effectively stress management, like the hormones can't change everything. Like you have to still do the stuff you're going to do. And I found that though, like, cause, and then I found that HRT really helps like, you know, and again, sometimes it's chicken or the egg, the HRT will help, but you still have to be doing, to your point, the blood sugar stuff, the gut health stuff, the stress management stuff. Don't you agree with that? Like you're not going to be able to keep up all of this like crazy eating or drinking and then expect HRT or which they're now calling menopause hormone therapy because you're not actually replacing full on all the hormones, but you're like supplementing so that the decrease is slower. Do you agree with that or? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's really important to have good gut health during menopause, because research shows that the diversity of your microbiome decreases during menopause. And having a diverse microbiome is really important for the production of neurotransmitters like serotonin that help with your mental health as well as your sleep. Um, like I said before, serotonin is the precursor to melatonin. So that's why we see a dip in melatonin in menopause is because the gut microbiome is impacted by menopause. So yeah, taking really good care of your gut is really important. Also, I always mispronounce this word, the estrobolome, which is how your gut microbiome interacts with estrogen. That Ooh. becomes even more important when you're in menopause because the estrobolome produces an enzyme called glucor... Is it? It's... Sorry. That's okay. Beta-glucuronidase. And what beta-glucuronidase does is it breaks the bond between estrogen and these enzymes that allow your body to rid itself of estrogen, to metabolize it. And so the beta-glucuronidase breaks the bond so that some estrogen recirculates. So if your gut microbiome isn't producing enough beta-glucuronidase, then that can actually impact your estrogen levels as well. Well, and you're also making me think if you're not eating well, then, and then you take more estrogen and you can't detox your estrogen, right? Like that's where, where MHT known as HRT could backfire, right? Because you need to be able to detox estrogen through the liver, all that stuff. If, cause if you're not detoxing it, then you're just, you're not even, do you know what I mean? Like that's, I never thought about, you just made me connect that as well. Like why eating well is just so important, <laughs> like overall, but to have healthy detox of your estrogen, yeah. especially making yeah. sure that going down the right pathways. So eating a lot of cruciferous vegetables becomes really important when you're in menopause because cruciferous vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, they contain an enzyme called DIM, which aids in the metabolization of estrogen. I love that. I love that. So if you're taking you know, an HRT and you're not metabolizing it correctly, then you know that could increase the risk of breast cancer. It's not really the HRT. It's more the way your body's processing it. And in order for your body to process it correctly, it needs to be 
cared for. Yeah. And for everyone listening, we're going to go into HRT in a different episode because that's like it's its whole own like beast. But yeah, but it can be really helpful for sleep. So, and then the last one I'm going to ask you from the Google Lightning Round before we get into more detail of, of some stuff is so, someone asked, what do doctors recommend for menopause relief? <laughs> it's like, they don't even recognize menopause, but I'll let you answer that. <laughs> when it comes to sleep, I find that most doctors will put you on a sleeping aid yeah. um, during menopause <laughs> and not really address the root cause, unfortunately. And I'm not a doctor basher. I, I think I have a lot of respect for doctors, but they just take a totally different approach. They're looking for symptom relief. Yeah. Yeah. Not, totally. not fixing the root cause of the issue. And I think that's so important because we didn't even get into this, but like certain medications, and again, I'm like, I'm with you. Doctors are amazing. Medication can be amazing. And there's a lot of medications that can interfere with sleep, right? And then, so like if you're, and then if you keep taking sleep aids, sleep aids, sleep aids, I don't know, it can interfere with other medications. So I think getting to the root when you can just eliminates a lot of complexity and potential, you know, plateauing and effects down the line. Um, Yeah, you're right. And I do have some clients where I actually recommend, hey, you are in such a bad place. You need to go to your doctor and get a sleep aid right away. Because the work that I do, it's not overnight. You're not going to see results overnight. It's going to take a good month, maybe two, maybe three, maybe six months. It just depends on this, how long you've been experiencing insomnia and how much dysfunction is present and how quickly you can adopt the protocols and your compliance that some people are just so severely sleep deprived that they don't even have enough energy to take the first step in improving their health, that they need something to break the cycle so that they can at least get some good sleep and start feeling better so that they can put in the work. Yes. I love that. I love that. It's like, yeah, let's like secure, batten down the hatches, like let's secure what we need to secure. And then we can move from there. You're meeting people where they are, which is, I love that. I always say it's like, there's no bad or good tool. It's the right tool at the right time that really makes the difference. So take me through how you work with clients, like when they come to you. I mean, I know how you work with me, but what do you, I'm just curious, like how you work with clients and what are some of the big misconceptions that show why you work the way that you work? Yeah. So like you said before, I take a mind-body approach. Right now, the gold standard for insomnia is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And I have been trained in all the methods. I can't say that I use CBTI because I'm not a licensed therapist, but I know all the strategies. (laughs) So cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is very important when it comes to addressing sleep issues. And basically that consists of addressing some important areas around sleep behavior. So your sleep hygiene, you know, are you sleeping in a dark, cool room with minimal noise, your sleep thoughts? So what are those messages you're telling yourself about your sleep? Are you constantly obsessing over the fact that you're not sleeping well? So then sleep again becomes this this anxiety-ridden event, and then you're not going to be able to sleep well because you're going to be in fight or flight and your body's going to be producing cortisol. And then also your brain's going to be active because you're so just hypervigilant because of the lack of sleep. Also, we call stimulus control, where if you develop a poor relationship with your bed, where your subconscious links your bed to a place where you worry and stay awake, then that can perpetuate the insomnia. So making sure that when you start to stress, you're getting out of bed and you're breaking that association. And then last but not least, stress management. So are you managing your mental and emotional stressors during the day? All those pillars are very important to address. So that's what I work first with my clients is making sure that they have good sleep hygiene. We're working on their thoughts, the way they're handling the wake-ups and ensuring that they're incorporating stress management, not only right before bed, but throughout the day. And doing that while we're waiting for the lab results to get back, to come back. And then once I receive the lab results, then I start building more of the customized protocols that involve dietary changes, different lifestyle changes, as well as supplements. Yeah. And what are you testing for with with specifically with the lab results? Because 
I know you do a hair mineral test analysis. You do a gut thing. You do the Dutch test or is or has have things changed? I'm curious, but like, just so people understand all the different physiological processes that you're looking at. Yeah. So I have a, a couple different packages, but my signature program involves five functional lab tests. So we're conducting a Dutch test, which is assessing your hormones. So your sex hormones, as well as your cortisol and melatonin, and looking at how those are being metabolized, which is really important. It also looks at some organic acids as well. Then we're running a GI map. It's a stool test that analyzes the DNA of your stool and gives us a report of the different species of bacteria in your stool and the quantities. We want to make sure that you're balanced. It also looks at some digestive markers, which are really important, including beta-glucuronidase. <laughs> uh, I've on the Dutch test. I'll see that a woman isn't detoxing her estrogen well, and then she'll have high beta-glucuronidase, and we know the reason. Also, a neurotransmitter test. I think this one's new since you and I have worked together. I really like the neurotransmitter test because we can get some good neurotransmitter therapy to help you sleep better in the meantime. So we're looking at things like serotonin and GABA and glycine, and then the more excitatory neurotransmitters like dopamine and neuroepinephrine and epinephrine. And I'm also running a hair tissue mineral analysis because hair is the best way to analyze your mineral status because it's showing us exactly what your body is utilizing. So I'm really focusing, balancing magnesium, calcium, sodium, and potassium and looking to see if you have any heavy metals, which heavy net metals, again, contribute to an inflammation and cortisol production. And then last but not least, I run a very thorough blood panel. And what I'm looking at is your thyroid function, also your liver enzymes and blood sugar, and then other markers that indicate can indicate if you have B vitamin deficiencies. I love that. And just so everyone realizes basically like if your sleep is, is if you're really struggling with sleep, it's just an indication that there's a couple of physiological processes that probably need some love and care. Wouldn't you say that like sleep is just kind of the entry point that you're noticing this? It's kind of like with my clients, like we're helping them holistically with what foods work best for them and stress management. But the way they understand that is through their battle with food. That's the apparent like pain. And wouldn't you say that with sleep? Like you're really giving people, I mean, I know you would never say this, but like you're kind of giving them a clinical, like busy, like a physical workup <laughs> in a way. Wouldn't you say that? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a full functional workup, like looking underneath the hood. How is your body function functioning? Where, yeah. where areas for improvements. And you're right. I don't feel like insomnia should be a diagnosis. It's more of a symptom of physical dysfunction as well as poor sleep hygiene and a negative sleep mindset. Yes. Yes. That you helped me so much with that. I've developed so much anxiety around sleep. And you were like, I remember when I like, I didn't sleep. You're like, don't react to it. Like, it's just like one night and I'm like, oh my God, this is how like I work with my clients. Like when they, you know, overeat again or binge, it's like, okay, what happened? Like, what can we use that as research? And so I had to use that with my own like sleep. Like you helped me be like, it's okay that it happened. Like, let's figure out what like perhaps we need to add or what you didn't do. Or like, it's just nothing. It's just some nights you have bad nights sleep. And as I got more and more rested, I mean, I was like trying to make up from two years of not sleeping, but it's like, even the other night, I, I just woke up at 1.30. I have no idea why. But I, I I functioned the whole day because I've been sleeping so well for a year, like for a couple of years. I mean, better for a couple of years. But it was just like, oh my God, I don't need to freak out about this and stress myself out. But I needed your help to get there because you do start to like, I, I just used to be such a like no-brainer sleeper. Like I just <laughs> you know, didn't have to think about it. And now, Frankly, I had to like adapt my whole life around it because it was, you know, and, and again, my life is overall healthier and better for it, but I really had to take it so seriously. Not as just like, oh, I hope I sleep tonight. It's like, no, you gotta, you gotta do the things. Yeah. You gotta <laughs> prepare your mind and body. Yes. Yes. When we were younger, because we didn't have as many, many stressors, like the more stressful yes. life, the busier you are the more time. Or parasites. I'm right? <laughs> just yeah. kidding. Not as many parasites out there. 
Yeah, just the more time you need to take to make sure that you're unwinding and preparing your body and spine for sleep. Totally. I think a lot of moms, I, you know, we tend to work after our kids go to bed and we're just not giving ourselves enough time to decompress. That's one thing I really had to change when I had insomnia was I had to stop working at night. And now it's like a non-negotiable to me. Like I just do not work in the evening. I have some clients work with me at night and I feel so bad telling them no, but if I work with them, I am not going to sleep well myself because my brain is going to be too active before I go to bed. 100%. You mentioned magnesium. So I'm always seeing, because I follow some functional medicine people, 80% of people are deficient in magnesium. And like that wasn't true for me, but can you talk about this and also about magnesium absorption and also potassium? Because you really taught me the importance of potassium and salt for my own sleep, because that was my issue more than magnesium. So two questions, magnesium and potassium. Can you rift? <laughs> yes, yes. Magnesium it seems to be the hot mineral these days. And for good reason, it's involved in, they say, sometimes I hear 400 enzyme reactions in our body. Sometimes I hear 600. So it's really, really important. It helps to calm our mind and our body. It plays a role in blood pressure, cell permeability, and the list goes on and on. And unfortunately, most of us are not meeting. I don't know if we can say necessarily that most of us are deficient, but 75 to 80% aren't meeting the recommended daily requirement of magnesium. And the thing with minerals is that you have to obtain minerals from external sources through food. You can't, your body doesn't generate minerals on its own like it does vitamins. So unfortunately, our food sources don't contain as much magnesium as they used to because our soil's being depleted. And also we're just not eating those magnesium rich foods in the Western diet. So that, you know, contributes to the fact that we're not meeting those recommendations. And also when you're stressed, your body burns through magnesium nine times faster than it normally does. If you're at a relaxed state and it's really almost diabolical because the more stressed you are, the more magnesium you need, but you're burning through it much more quickly. And so I do see in the HTMAs that I run that most of my clients are deficient in magnesium. And it's either because their body is retaining a lot of sodium and potassium. Sodium and potassium are solvents and electrolytes, and they help to speed up your metabolism So my clients that we call fast oxidizers, they have a really fast metabolism. They're just burning through their magnesium because of the high sodium and potassium. Whereas my slow oxidizers, they typically have very depleted levels of sodium potassium. And so therefore their magnesium on the hair test will look like it's really high. And they think that's good. Like, oh, wow, look how high my magnesium is. No, that's not good. That means that your body is not absorbing it that it's like getting stuck in the intercellular fluids and you need to support potassium and sodium in order to be able to utilize the magnesium. And then there's other cofactors like your B vitamins. So a lot of insomniacs are poor methylators. And so they typically just also, you know, struggle with B vitamin and folate deficiencies, and that can contribute to poor magnesium absorption as well. Wow. A lot because you don't hear about you again, you hear about magnesium, but you're giving us the whole story, right? Because, like, there's a and and of course, there's a lot more to it because I just want to emphasize again for everyone, like Kelly has been saying, like, blood sugar and gut health are so foundational. And once you get that in, I mean, all these minerals and this stuff can help, but you, you need to get the solid stuff so that you're the foundational stuff. So you're getting like the B vitamins in that you need. You're getting all of the other things that you need to absorb all of these minerals and everything. So you can be to your point, like if you're not eating the right foods for your body and you're a slow oxidizer, you're like, I need more and more magnesium. It's like, no, you need to absorb it more, which, you know, getting your body online through, you know, all the, all the foundational things will help. So I just think that's important for people like to emphasize. And so I think, I don't think a magnesium is a quick fix for it because it's kind of a supplement, but people probably think if I take magnesium, oh, I'm not falling asleep. What are some like quick fixes you see people taking like melatonin supplements or like, what do people go to for relief, but that aren't necessarily addressing the root cause? 
Yeah, I do think a lot of people reach for melatonin and melatonin is one of those controversial supplements. I I feel like there's there are worse things you could be taking to address your sleep issues. So if melatonin works for you, hey, I don't see an issue with it because it has a lot of other benefits. It plays a big role in your immune system. It's an anti-inflammatory. So if it works, great. But unfortunately, melatonin doesn't work well for most people who have issues staying asleep. I find that it works better for individuals that struggle to fall asleep. So yes, melatonin is definitely one of those supplements that people try first. And most people find that it it doesn't address the issue. And then another supplement that I see used commonly would be like L-theanine, which is good for stress reduction. And with some people it helps, but really I think if you address the underlying stressors, that would probably be more beneficial. However, like I said, I think it is important though to find some quick fixes if you can to get you sleeping better because insomnia is a stressor in and of itself. And you're just going to be really tired and have a hard time working on your foundational protocols. But yes, um, L-theanine is another, another quick fix. Also GABA, a lot of people will take GABA. And some people aren't deficient in GABA. So I do run the neurotransmitter test. And I find that a lot of my clients who have high dopamine levels and neuroepinephrine and epinephrine, they struggle with sleep, but they don't have a deficiency in GABA just because they have a lot of these excitatory neurotransmitters in their system. Another, What about, what about CBD gummies? Oh, yeah. So people try that too. That's another popular one. And I find that... I hear people say that it helps, but it doesn't correct the problem a hundred percent. But then again, like I, people come to me when they've already tried all the things. All that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so of course, like my I get it. Same here. It's a little <laughs> skewed. So I'm not saying that CBD doesn't work. So I'm sure it works for a lot of people, but with my clients, I find that they'll say it helps, but it doesn't fix the problem a hundred percent. And I think that's because you don't know if you have a endocannabinoid deficiencies. Our bodies naturally produce cannabinoids to help maintain balance in our system. And yes, you can be become deficient because of stress and age. And so if you are and you supplement with CBD, yeah, it's definitely going to have an effect. But you know, we don't know if that's the underlying cause. Yeah. One more question for me and then we'll wrap up here, but you, you always are read. I mean, you meaning like the collective, you are always reading, don't eat two to three hours before bed. But in our work, I, you told me to have a snack before bed because I was waking up in the middle of the night and like often not being able to fall back asleep. But that really helped because my blood sugar was bottoming out (laughs) in the middle of the night. So can you just talk about how do you determine if someone should try a snack before bed? or that could help them or it potentially could hinder. And I know they will ultimately have to see for themselves, but can you, what signals do you that someone may need that? Yeah, I would say it's more helpful when people are waking up too early or they're having middle of the night wake-ups. And sometimes you may have symptoms of low blood sugar, like being shaky, you know, being thirsty. So having cravings for food, being hungry. So if you have those symptoms, definitely try a snack, but you may not have those symptoms or they may be so subtle that you don't even realize. I always think it's worth trying and not to just try it one night, try it for a few nights and see if it helps. And the snack needs to be small. So we, we do say don't eat a big meal within that like three hour window before you sleep, because you don't want your body doing a lot of digesting because digesting is a sign of your body that it's daytime. So it's going to interact and um, interfere with your circadian rhythm. But if you have a small snack, hundred to 200 calories where it's balanced, you want to make sure that it contains healthy, little healthy fats, protein and complex carbohydrates that isn't going to result in a ton of digestion where it's going to throw off your circadian rhythm, but it could be just enough, you know, macronutrients in order to stabilize your blood sugar throughout the night. So I think it's like one of those low cost, really easy solutions to try. Yeah. And just for everyone, an idea of like what I eat is I eat like two slices of turkey breast and like half a piece of whatever fruit we have. And then usually like a couple peanuts, like that's like my, I eat it like every night because 
So that's an example of like a small snack that works. And I'm someone who really needs animal protein. So that's why just to keep my blood sugar balanced. So yeah, those are definitely good snacks or you could try even yogurt with berries. Oh yeah. I can't do yogurt. Like dairy, I I can't do yogurt all that, all that time. It makes me really bloated. And I found in menopause, bloat is just like, it's like the littlest thing that makes me so much more bloated. So, but if people can do dairy, that's a great one, like Greek yogurt or something really high in fat. All right, Kelly. So we're going to wrap up here. We covered a lot of ground today. And listen, everyone, if you don't get to take all the notes, it's okay. If you go to alishapiro.com backslash podcast, we have a really great summary. We're doing things differently this season. There's a great summary. There's a transcript. You can get everything that we talked about in a digestible, food puns forever, <laughs> form on, on my website. So don't worry about that. So Again, we covered a lot of the ground. What do you think are the top three actionable takeaways listeners who are going through perimenopause or menopause can put into practice immediately that would help them on the right step for sleep tonight? Yeah. So number one, I would say take good care of your gut. Eat fermented foods. They say three servings is just as beneficial as taking probiotics and prebiotics. But if you can't do that, And it's always good to supplement with probiotics and prebiotics. Make sure you're eating whole food diets. Stay away from those processed foods because the bad bacteria thrive on those, those types of things. Also take good care of your liver so that you're metabolizing your hormones effectively. I really like using castor oil packs. They're super easy. Queen of Thrones is my favorite brand doing some dry brushing, making sure you're sweating every day through exercise or doing an infrared sauna. And then last but not least, balancing your blood sugar because you do become more insulin resistant when you enter perimenopause and menopause. I love that. I love that. And also I'm just going to plug something that you taught me and I had read about, but you really explained the importance to me of like getting up at the same time every day within a 30 minute window. Even if you're freaking tired, you got to do it to just kind of like reset and and work on it. So I just, I want to add, add that in. And that was pretty important for me going to bed around the same time every night within 30 minutes and waking up that you taught me. So is there anything that we didn't get into this interview that you'd like to address? There are so many things. <laughs> being so natural and something that when we were younger, we never thought about sleep. It could be really, really complicated. So one thing you could do is head to my website, Kelly Murray Adult Sleep. I have a video about the hidden sleep sabotager. So it will get into more of like the lesser known root causes of sleep issues. I love that. Well, and I was going to ask, what is the best way for listeners to find out more about you and your work? Yeah. So you can catch me on Instagram, Kelly Murray Adult Sleep. I have a YouTube channel, Kelly Murray Adult Sleep. And of course, like I mentioned, my website has the free mini training. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. We have covered so much ground and I think really opened people up to the possibility that they could have so much better sleep than they expect right now. So thank you. (laughs) Yes, you too, Allie. I hope that everyone was able to take away at least one actionable item that's going to translate into better sleep. Yes, for sure. Take care, everyone.